What is up, bad fans? How you doing? Today we are again talking about psychedelics, and there's a lot of interesting news happening. It seems every other month there's another study coming out about the use of psychedelic-assisted therapy. The FDA has just recently laid out draft guidelines for approval of these therapies. The largest, one of the largest psychedelic conferences hosted by MAPS, I believe, just occurred in Denver. So there's a lot of things happening uh, when it comes to psychedelic assisted therapy. Still a lot of open questions that we've talked about on this show. A lot of things to sort out and things are moving. Maybe some people think things are moving too fast. But one thing that I'm not so sure that we talk about enough is psychedelics outside of the clinic. Because as these things become medicalized, you can see the same pathway that happened with marijuana. It first became accepted and approved as a medical treatment, and then more and more places moved to legalize. And yes, some places are already decriminalizing and even legalizing the use, the recreational use of psychedelics like psilocybin. But what does this look like in practice? How do we introduce such, you know, really powerful states, really powerful substances to a society that has no real historical use of them other than a flash in the pan, you know, movement from the 60s and 70s that kind of went off the rails in many ways and led to a sort of demonization. Obviously, there's a lot of complex historical and political factors that went into that, but that's really a lot of people's only real contact point with these kind of substances and states of mind. So how are we going to sort of build cultural containers or to steal a term from, from the psychedelic movement, how are we going to enculturate these experiences, these substances into our society? And one of the terms that comes up that is again taken from the sort of clinical side is this idea of integration. How do we integrate the things that we experience from drug-induced and non-drug-induced psychedelic substances. And it's important to mention that, that there's many ways to get into a so-called psychedelic state, breathwork, meditation, all of these kind of things. If we believe that there's some kind of positive value to these states, how do we incorporate that very strange and hard-to-describe experience into our everyday life? Many of the things that we see now that are available are a blend of what people call traditional uses, which if you've listened to past episodes, we can understand that that might actually not be totally accurate. The ways in which these shamanistic, ritualistic ways of, of, of using these things might not be totally accurate. And then beyond that, it begs the question, is that the right container for the sort of Western society that has no real connection to those kind of traditions in the first place? Is that the right way to try and incorporate these into our lives? And this is a question that has been on my mind for a long time. And thankfully, my previous reporting and interviews that I've done with the Mind Foundation led me to their program, a workshop called Beyond Experience, that attempts to bring these integration tools to people, to people in our society. They're hosting these workshops all over Europe. And I asked if I could attend to see what it was all about and to try and really understand what this process of integration is about, how it's going to be done, how, how this workshop teaches it, 
And how is this going to help us bring psychedelics, like I said, to a society that largely has little experience with them? And let me tell you, this was a very difficult show to make. I thought I was going to go to this workshop and boom, 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 interview a bunch of people who had some compelling stories about, well, I had this experience. I didn't know what to make of it. It was sort of, it didn't fit in my life. It troubled me or it was very profound. And now I'm left feeling, what did it all mean? And this workshop helped me in this way, this way, this way. And there we go. I could have an answer. I could look at sort of arguments for and against. And there we go. It would be done. I very quickly realized that that was not the best way to tell the story of the experience that I had because I had an experience that I wasn't expecting. And in that experience at this workshop, it led me down a path of questions, questioning whether this was even really a good idea, whether we could even really uh, find ways, appropriate ways to integrate these substances, questioning whether, you know, it really needed to be integrated. All of these sorts of things came up. And at the end of it, I realized that just trying to tell my story, my experience that I wasn't expecting at this workshop was maybe the best way to highlight how this process may work. And I didn't get a direct answer. I did not get the black and white answer that I was expecting. And in a way, I think that's a good thing. I don't want to give too much of it away, but while I didn't get a clear answer, I definitely see the pathway more clearly. And I think that that might be the point. And I'll let you decide whether you agree or not. So as always, please reach out. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Like I said, it's something that took me a really long time to grapple with and to understand how best to portray this information. So let me know what you think. Reach out to the show, Instagram or Twitter, at 2 for you. We have an email, 2 you at gmail.com. You can visit the website, 2 and find all of the links to how to get in touch with us. Also, please do subscribe, leave us a review, leave us a comment wherever you're getting your podcasts. This really helps. And again, just let me know what you think of this episode. I would love to hear from you. So that's it. That's all for the intro. Let's get into it. My experience at the Beyond Experience workshop. In 1931, Sir Winston Churchill, yes, that Winston Churchill, famous British Prime Minister, was struck by a car while visiting New York City. He wrote an essay about the whole experience titled, My New York Misadventure. And in it, he describes receiving the anesthetic nitrous oxide, otherwise known as laughing gas, something that he had experienced before. He goes on to describe the whole nitrous oxide experience in these words. With me, the nitrous oxide trance usually takes this form. The sanctum is occupied by alien powers. I see the absolute truth and explanation of things, but something is left out which upsets the whole. So by a larger sleep of the mind, I have to see a greater truth and a more complete explanation, which comprises the erring element. Nevertheless, there is still something left out. So we have to take a still wider sweep. 
This almost breaks mortal comprehension. It is beyond anything the human mind was ever meant to master. The process continues inexorably. Depth beyond depth of undurable truth opens. I have therefore always regarded the nitrous oxide trance as a mere substitution of mental for physical pain. Pain it certainly is, but suddenly these poignant experiences end and without a perceptible interval, consciousness returns. Who would have thought that Winston Churchill in the 1930s would give such an apt description of a psychedelic experience? Humans have been aware of these states for a long time. They can be induced by substances such as LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, or in the case of Winston Churchill, by the formulations of gases that we usually breathe to survive. Similar states of mind are achieved through breathwork or meditation. And the methods of getting there and the experience provoked are quite variable. But there's one similar trait the ineffable or slippery nature of these experiences themselves. While they're happening, feelings and thoughts seem urgent, important, profound, relevant, and then in an instant, they're gone. And we're left wondering what it all means, what exactly happened. We can find ourselves scrambling to hang on to what it was that was so damn important. In the recent clinical research with these substances, psilocybin, etc., there's an understanding that this state of mind can be potent and can be healing, but it's not understood precisely why. But the researchers working in this space seem to have correctly identified that it is not just the experience itself that will magically lead to better outcomes. There needs to be some kind of therapeutic framework to complement it. This therapy component is sometimes called integration. And integration has a few flexible definitions across the different schools of thought. But if I may paraphrase it very simply, to me, integration is about finding a way to use that psychedelic experience, to learn from that experience, whether that involves some kind of therapeutic outcome, inspiration, personal growth. How do we get some kind of benefit or meaning from these intense, sometimes indescribable moments that are just so slippery to hang on to. And this question is really important to me, or really fascinating to me, because I am interested in how these substances are going to be introduced to a society, or let's call it Western society, that has little experience with these kind of states of mind outside of a recreational setting like our high school friend's basement or a festival or maybe a self-help retreat setting, which is usually debatably based on some kind of indigenous tradition and for a select few, perhaps a clinical or medicinal setting. As I've said a million times on this show, I used to think that if everybody just took a psychedelic, the world would be a better place. And as I've said a million and one times on this show, my views on that have changed. And while I believe these experiences can be enjoyed just for the sake of enjoying them, I also think, as do many others, that there is a possibility for something more profound to be achieved, for some sort of benefit to be gained but that this requires, like in the clinical setting, some kind of effort beyond the experience. And so if we accept in our society that there is something to be gained from these experiences or that we are going to allow 
mostly everyone to experience these, what will that effort look like? How will people be guided to achieve maximum benefit from these experiences? And like everything in psychedelics, there is also a flip side, a dark side, safety issues that we must be concerned about. People who may be lost or seeking something are already potentially vulnerable. Mix that with a very potent psychedelic state and you have a recipe for exploitation or delusion. There are countless examples of the misuse of psychedelics to exploit or control people. We have health trend guruism outside of psychedelics that already serves to enrich the sellers of snake oil. And we have examples of people detaching from reality or responsibility from their lives, in part aided by the overuse of psychedelics. So is there a way to both open people up to the possibility that there's something to be gained here? Provide them with some kind of tools to explore that while not restricting the types of experience or context that they might want to put these experiences in, but also keeping them safe at the same time. This seems like a very complex question and something that I'm not sure enough people in the psychedelic space are thinking about. Thankfully, one place where I have found this discussion is in the Mind Foundation an organization that we've heard a lot about on this show. They are a nonprofit based in Berlin that is working on the clinical side, but also on the cultural and societal side in terms of starting discussions about how our society will answer some of these questions, how we will provide safe and equal access to these types of experiences, how we can begin to enculturate these types of experiences into our naive society. And they host a workshop called Beyond Experience. And according to one of the co-founders of the Mind Foundation and creators of this workshop, Henrik Jungeberler, this workshop is really the heart of their foundation. And it's an attempt to promote a growth or personal skills-oriented perspective of psychedelic experiences rather than simply a drug-centered one. So I made a request to the Mind Foundation if I could attend the workshop and make a podcast about it. They said yes. And so I packed my bags and headed to Berlin. This edition of the workshop was being held at the Mind offices in downtown Berlin, and it brought together 20 or so individuals, all of whom had very different backgrounds, ages, levels of experience with psychedelic substances or meditations, and very different motivations for being there. One of the few common threads that I could notice between all of us was this curiosity in the psychedelic state and the belief that there was something to be gained there. While these experiences are odd and sometimes troubling, sometimes euphoric, there is something there worth taking note of and even exploring. And we were all looking for a way to grasp that, to unlock that. We also shared the belief that if approached with caution and respect, there could be a benefit for many people in society outside of a medicinal framework. But how is this workshop going to help us and by extension, broader society, learn to use these experiences in a positive way while protecting ourselves from some of the dangers that we've already discussed? Well, the workshop is described as an experiential workshop, meaning 
participants engage in some non-substance-induced psychedelic experiences and then go through some kind of steps towards integration. The experiences themselves are meditations, either with music, guided meditation, silent meditations, these sorts of things. After this, the participants participate in integration-type activities. And this involved two parts, one which was very individual, silent, and another that took place with the group. The first was focused on art. And this seemed like a common sense way to ask people to, without using words, reflect on and convey their experience. It also struck me as a very practical one. You have 20 or so very different people, and everyone is going to find their own ways to sort of achieve this reflection process. And art was something that could be generally accessible and easy to provide to a group of people. And while art isn't really my thing, I think I understood the point of the exercise. Take some time to sit with an experience that you just had. Don't rush to put it directly into words or explain it or judge it or figure it out right away. We were just being asked to contemplate and sit with it. This made sense to me. And the next part was the communal aspect, which was sharing the pieces of art we had just completed along with our thoughts and feelings and everything that we felt comfortable disclosing with the group. And it's important to note here that this wasn't an invitation for everyone else in the group to start commenting or providing their own thoughts or interpretations on someone's experience. In fact, we were explicitly told to do the opposite, something the group facilitators called holding space, which simply meant being an open listener, Someone who is just there to receive the thoughts without judgment, without comment, without analysis. Now, during the break times, at lunch, after the workshop, while we were all sharing meals, we were all freely conversing about our experiences, everything that we had talked about and discussed during the day. But at the moment of this sharing, it was simply about having a group there to hear you and allow you to express some thoughts and feelings that may be difficult, challenging, confusing. It gave everyone an opportunity to kind of let some things out and let some things see the light of day. And then the remaining workshop time involved what you would see at a more conventional workshop, the knowledge transfer part. The group facilitators provided information and some lectures on some of the psychology or clinical knowledge that went into developing this type of workshop. The Beyond Experience workshop is based on acceptance and commitment therapy. And we talked about terms like psychological flexibility and rigidity. And I'm going to put links to all of this stuff in the show notes for those that want to learn more. And so as we move through the workshop, diving into these experiences with the meditation exercise, followed by the reflection period, the art, followed by the communal aspect of the sharing, it kind of made sense as a framework for how one might approach psychedelic experiences. Take some time after you've gone through it, have a method to reflect on it, and importantly, have people you can talk to about it. And while it wasn't a strict manual or protocol, like I said, it made sense. But I found myself feeling a little bit on the outside of the group. As I had mentioned in the intro, I came into this workshop thinking that I would be 
the fly on the wall reporter, thinking that this wasn't really for me. I didn't really need a workshop, so to speak, on integration or dealing with psychedelic experience. I had the preconceived notion that this was really for folks that maybe had some troubling experiences with psychedelics or had some lingering feelings, doubts, confusion regarding some of the experiences that they might have had. And this turned out to not be correct. A negative experience is not a precursor for this type of exploration. But as I sat there listening to the other participants describing the range of emotions, feelings, insights, and introspective thoughts they had about their experiences here at the workshop and prior, it kind of felt like they were gaining more from this than I was, that they were able to explore deeper depths or that they simply had deeper depths to their life, to their emotions, to their feelings than I did. And on one hand, I felt a little jealous. On the other hand, I felt, well, most of my experiences with meditation, psychedelics, whatever, have been overwhelmingly positive. I wouldn't say necessarily groundbreaking. And I maintained the thought, well, maybe that's just me. Maybe there's nothing profound that needs to be dug up. As it turns out, I was wrong. During one of the meditations, instead of the usual kind of blissful visuals and relaxing sort of daydreaming, the escape from the constant stream of conscious thoughts that I normally experience when I do meditation. Some things came up that, if I'm being honest, I know exist in my mind. These were insecurities about my career, the work that I do, a strong desire to be viewed as a successful and serious person in the field of science journalism, science communication that I've chosen to follow, a wanting to be acknowledged, to be seen, to be recognized for having done good work, feelings of legacy, I guess you could say, feelings that I'm sure many of us have, but it was as though my mind was showing them to me in a new way in a more urgent light. I wasn't able to just push them to the back as I might do 99% of the time. My mind also seemed to be asking me almost about a particular trait that I, again, know that I have where sometimes I feel the need to see the extreme, to let my mind wander to extreme dark places to feel that, whether this is sometimes with movies, oftentimes with reading horrible accounts from history or forcing myself to really look at suffering in the world. Again, I know that I do this and I know that I can bring myself to these places, but it was as though it was being presented to me as why, why do you do this? Is there a reason? Might there be something going on? And there was some inexplicable link to the feelings I had about my career and wanting to tell stories. It was all very intense and I couldn't really explain it. It didn't really fit together nicely. It didn't quite make sense. Again, it wasn't the thoughts and feelings themselves. 
I know that these exist in my mind, but it was the combination of them that appeared to hint at something more profound. But like a classic psychedelic experience, that meaning appeared just out of reach. And while it felt nice to share this with the group, I was still left wondering what it all meant. What, if anything, was I supposed to do with this? Why now? Why did these thoughts seem so urgent and unshakable? And this unease actually stuck with me for the rest of the day as I headed out into the streets of Berlin, as I had dinner, as I returned to my hotel room. I was still somewhat troubled and puzzled. And that evening in my hotel room, as I did a daily debrief of the workshop and recorded my thoughts, my mind turned towards set and setting. Those familiar with psychedelics and psychedelic research will know that set and setting is shorthand for all of the different external and internal factors that can influence the outcome or the nature of a psychedelic experience. Classic things that we've heard about, such as music or lighting, whether you're indoors or outdoors. But there are also internal factors, the emotional state of a person, any anxieties or fears they might have, uh, any religious context that they're bringing to the experience, any preconceived thoughts or notions about psychedelics or psychedelic experience. All of these things can dramatically influence what happens or what is felt during the experience itself. In a way, this is a good thing. It's led to some general tips and knowledge about how to set oneself up for a good psychedelic trip. But I couldn't shake the feeling that I had set myself up for this profound revelation that I had experienced. Had my thoughts about the workshop not being for me, me being an outsider, viewing the other participants in the workshop with a tinge of jealousy, had I not just primed myself to feel some kind of revelation? Did my wanting of that lead my mind to sort of give me what I was asking for? Or was it a genuine insight? And if I had simply set myself up for this, well, then what to do with that experience? Did it require further thought? Should I be thinking about what this means for my life or how I might reconcile these feelings? Is there something actionable that I could do to alleviate these anxieties and maybe achieve the things that I wanted to achieve? This question of authenticity seemed important to me because I don't want to be lunging at windmills. What if I'm just inventing problems to keep myself occupied? Is this really the best use of my mental space? Is it healthy to invent problems simply to have something to work on? I mean, this could also set people up for a never-ending loop of searching for something that you're never really going to find, or maybe that you don't even need to find, which again, might open you up to exploitation. You just need to try this method. You just need to try this next little thing, and that will give you the breakthrough that will bring you to the place you want to be. Then you'll be fixed. As I mentioned earlier, there's no shortage of people trying to sell these remedies already, which is something that really bothers me and concerns me about our current society and the need for healing, growth, or a quick fix for every anxiety, problem, distressful, or discomforting situation that we find ourselves in. 
And so as we began the next day and moved into yet another meditation exercise, I just couldn't get into it because my mind was just occupied with this thought of set and setting and interpretation or the need to find meaning. And I was slightly embarrassed to bring this up with the group because on one hand, it felt like it would be so cliche for the science journalist guy to start questioning these interpretations and meanings of these experiences. It would feel overly cynical, judgmental, paternalistic in a way that I was actually quite uncomfortable with. And I really didn't want to ruin the experience of the other participants by essentially saying, hey, maybe all of this means nothing. So during one of the breaks, I decided to bring these thoughts, concerns, feelings I was having to the lead facilitator of our workshop, Simona Rakusa. She's someone I really felt like I could trust. And one of these people that seems to exude a sort of wisdom and lived experience, but is also very, very humble and open to discussion and to openly engage and listen to conflicting viewpoints and ideas. And right away, we both agreed that, yes, of course, there's a danger to sort of over-interpreting these things or maybe getting lost in these experiences. But I kept pushing her for an answer that maybe I didn't even really know I wanted. And so I put to her the concern that, what if we're just here patting each other's egos? What if there's really nothing behind the experience, but we're just trying to make ourselves feel better by reaffirming our own thoughts and feelings in a group. Getting to the, to the goal, mm -hmm. but also it's like a self-fulfilling thing. And I had this thought of like, what if we're all here just kind of patting each other's egos? And I don't, I don't know. I don't, and I like, I w I'm actually afraid to share this with the group because I don't want to like rain on anybody's parade or anything like that mm -hmm. and I don't even know like I want you to be I want to be clear with you that I'm not I'm not trying to be negative no, you know I, like I, I hear you. yeah maybe you're right and even if we are doing this what's wrong with that now this may come as no surprise to some of you but I didn't have a very good answer to that question I rambled on admitting that something about inauthenticity just kind of bothers me and that maybe coming from a scientific background, the, the presence of an objective or quantifiable definition of what is a genuine insight and how that should be approached seemed important. And finally, I landed on it, it just doesn't seem like it would be that helpful for people. To be honest, I wasn't even really convincing myself at this point. It just doesn't seem like it would be the most helpful thing for people. But I guess, <laughs> I don't know, I could what? find a number of, a number of counter... I, I can only have questions to what you are asking. And then if you have the sense of inauthenticity, so what would be more authentic and more helpful? Once again, this wasn't what I wanted to hear. And I couldn't articulate a particularly compelling response. In the end, I did share these thoughts with the group. And whereas I thought it might alienate me or be viewed as a downer on everybody's experience, it of course was the opposite. People were very open to discussing this topic and I had many great conversations and recommendations for books, for podcasts, mostly to do with this question of meaning and whether things that happen in the psychedelic state are quote unquote real. 
But there was something more specific that continued to bother me. And that's that really there's one thing that kind of sums up all of my concerns about psychedelics and bringing psychedelics to a larger segment of society. And that's mystical or esoteric interpretations of these experiences and the power of these substances or states of mind. And maybe this is just in part, again, my cynicism coming from the science background. And I admit that it feels very arrogant to express these thoughts and to think about this, because who am I to tell someone else how to think or interpret their experience? But I'm troubled by some of these frameworks because I think that they can detach people from reality, from their community. When we hear so-called shamans or gurus or people running some of these ayahuasca ceremonies or retreats say things like the plant medicine will show you what you need to see. The ayahuasca spirits will reveal what it is that you need to work on. That feels to me like an abdication of responsibility in terms of just waiting for the substance to show you what it is that needs to be fixed. It also feels like it's going to set people up on this, yes, dangerous pathway of constantly seeking, waiting for something to be shown to you that may or may not happen. And if it does happen, it comes back to this, why did you see that? And is it real? And by real, I mean, will spending time and energy focusing on that particular moment in experience or supposed revelation by a psychedelic entity, will it actually achieve benefit or positive outcome in your life? I'm not so sure. Like I've said before, these sorts of grifts already exist in the health and wellness space. And I think adding psychedelics to the mix could be a very dangerous combination. And it could set back the whole project of finally opening up our thinking about these substances in society and in a way legitimizing them. A large group of disaffected people who feel they have been cheated by the promise of quasi-appropriated indigenous ceremonies or mystical beings and, and the relevatory answers that these experiences will bring could have society turning away from these types of experiences altogether, similar to what happened in the 60s and the 70s. And so this is where I was at. I had experienced some thoughts and feelings in a meditation and was on board with the idea that, yes, integration needs to happen. We need to be thinking about how to place these experiences in some kind of context for our lives. But on the other hand, thinking that, well, if we don't have a proper tried and true method to do so, are we going to do more harm than good? And then I had a conversation with fellow workshop participant, 
Matthias Gleisch. No, I have ADHD, so if I jump around a lot, I feel sorry, but for me, everything is connected. <laughs> Matthias is a social worker and therapist in Berlin, where he was also born and raised. And he was taking the workshop as part of the Mind Foundation certification program for those who want to deliver psychedelic-assisted therapy. And yes, at times it was hard to keep up with Matthias, but the conversations were extremely helpful for me and enjoyable. Matthias opened up with me about how in the past he was that overly esoteric, mystical, psychedelics heal everything kind of guy. And while his thinking on that has evolved over time, he still had a very humble and respectful way of talking about and acknowledging the very ineffable and mystical aspect of some of these experiences. Maybe the spirits are true. I don't know. I have also a bit problems with this idea, but I, when I took ayahuasca, the most rational and sense-making interpretation of the experience was that there are spirits. It was like And that does not take my responsibility away, or I see it as projections, like a Jungian psychologist would say, this is all projections of parts and you take them back. I take them back, I take the energy. But from honestly, from the experience was like, oh, there is a world where this is also happening. You know, it was like, okay, it doesn't feel like projections of myself. It feels like entities, but I don't give a shit. <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks for the info. And I, I have difficulties afterwards. I'm not, I would say it's more projection, but I really understand because within the experience, it does not feel like a projection. It feels like I'm talking to you. So full compassion, even if it's wrong or right, it's like, it's not a stupid interpretation of the situation in my experience. This definitely brought some much needed humility into my thinking. He also had a take that I hadn't considered before about my desire for this right way and a wrong way to contextualize these experiences and the feelings of arrogance and guilt that I had about wanting to have a judgment on a right way or a wrong way. Points to something like you come from a Christian background, you told me, and, and right and wrong have a very paternalistic, conservative interpretation to it. I even believe that sometimes it's needed, but only if it's part from a, in a bigger context so that you can drop it like it's hot when it's pushing stuff down, you know? So I, I ask myself, is it serving the situation to my earnest and best knowledge? Is it serving the situation? Is it serving myself? Is it serving my relation to the other people I am with? And is it serving to the cultural and social and natural surrounding? This was a very important question that I think we all need to ask ourselves. And I think it's one of the big lessons that I've taken away from this integration process is, are my interpretations, are my feelings, are my concerns actually going to help? Can I see a way in which they will better the community or better myself? Or am I just, for lack of a better term, hung up on my own bullshit? And these conversations with Matthias really demonstrated the process of integration, the first looking in and reflecting on what we experienced, and then going out to the community 
and how these two processes are essential. If you take your ayahuasca or whatever it is, or you do and you, you dance and you try, you become a self-centered idiot, the tribe will tell you to stop. <laughs> you know, that's elation again. And we don't live, we live in our little chicken cells and we don't have relations. So everyone can do his number and there's no feedback system. That's why groups and, are so important. And if you're part of a group, there needs to be a certain willingness to do this, I giving myself to it. And this is when I started to come to a realization that there is really no specific method to integration. You can do art, you can journal, you can make music, but the willingness to engage in integration, the willingness to try and think about your experience and understand it and put it into a context that fits in your worldview, that itself is the magic, not just accepting an experience for what it was or how you first interpreted it to be, but rather bringing that to other people and allowing other perspectives and allowing yourself to change your mind about what it might mean or what it could offer you. I next had a conversation with Henrik Jungeberle, the co-founder of the Mind Foundation and one of the co-developers of the Beyond Experience program. And he really reinforced this social aspect of integration. We are social beings. Learning from our social environment is much stronger than learning from uh, single experiences. So any also psychedelic experience needs to be transformed into uh, a social process. That's where, where language comes in. That's where your decisions to meet other people and build new groups and become part of uh, a new social group comes in. And it's understudied, I think. It's underestimated that the real process of psychedelic therapy or psychedelic change, even outside of therapy, begins actually with the decisions that people make after an experience. Who are you, uh, who are you uh, speaking to? Who are you making friends with after you had that experience? A lot of people are changing their life uh, completely or, or uh, at least dramatically. And um, we should put a more uh, focus on why are they doing that? Are they doing it wisely? What do they get from the social environments? And the social environment that we artificially create in these these four days is an environment of uh, respectful attention to the other person that is not avoiding challenging questions. So what I find amazing that many groups develop a style of, oh, we won't let you go with what you just said. And people... And people are are perceiving that as a friendly reminder of, yeah, I can grow beyond what I just said, usually, if it works well. And it, it, it very often works well. So um, it's an amazingly quick uh, group process. Hearing Henrik speak about groups and the groups that people choose to join or build after an experience also helped to clarify something for me, which is that Beyond Experience and the Mind Foundation, when it comes to the project of enculturation, of bringing psychedelic experiences to our naive society, they're not offering a method. They're not offering a context or framework with which to interpret or place these experiences. They're offering the chance to build a group, to join a community that can hopefully fulfill that important social aspect of integration. 
He also spoke about attempting to infuse this process of critical thinking into these groups and into these communities so that people can be empowered to discover new ways of contextualizing or experiencing psychedelics. Critical thinking in the sense of thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis uh, is important. We try to bring together the rational with uh, deep experiences. And I think that's a crucial element for making psychedelic experience part of a postmodern society. We cannot just uh, adopt the beliefs of uh, older white men who have done research in the last 40 years or 50 years. People need to be empowered to see where the, where the ideas and experiences come from and what they can do with it. I, I, I'm, I'm often using the, the, the term respectfulness, deep respectfulness for human beings but respectlessness for ideas. So all the ideas, even the ideas that people have in their deepest psychedelic experience should be investigated. Well, there you go. It all just sounds so simple, right? Build groups that can critically think about these experiences and interpret and analyze them in a way that betters themselves and betters their community. But so much of what I worry about when it comes to enculturation, again, comes down to this need in our society for a final answer. By going through this process of integration and talking with Matthias and Henrik and the other people in this workshop, I can now see that I had fallen into that trap. I was looking for the right way or the wrong way to contextualize or interpret these experiences. And I was struggling with finding a method of, of deciphering whether my insights were true insights or just a byproduct of set and setting. So I asked Henrik about his thoughts on the allure that psychedelics seem to offer in terms of providing the last piece of information, that relevatory aha moment that fits all the pieces together. Will it finally lead to a, a last conviction and a last insight? It very rarely happens. People keep on asking the questions for decades. So why don't we rather accept that, uh, that psychedelics pose more questions than give uh, answers? <laughs> and that if we get answers, they are, they are worked out in our social struggle, in our communications, in our dialogues, and in the way that we uh, might change our behaviors. I think looking at our behaviors, including the way that we perceive ourselves, is a wonderful way of doing something uh, with the psychedelic experience, of taking a learning thing from, from them, instead of always going to that to that fantasy of the the sacred voice that will one day solve all the problems. I think that's an illusion. That's an illusion that people are struggling with and an illusion that might become stronger with some of the groups bringing or, or camouflaging this idea with spiritual, spiritualistic or religious ideas. I think we have come farther uh, in the last uh, decades or hundreds of years and need to adapt this respectful, constructivist uh, insights that we got about the brain and about our beings also to the psychedelic experience. 
And so I guess I have maybe one final cliche realization, and that is that it's not about the destination, it's the journey. Integration is not about getting to somewhere predefined by a predefined protocol. It's just about the willingness to engage in the process and the work is never done. And my process of integration that I experienced by going through this workshop and making this podcast is in a way a microcosm of this whole enculturation process that society is going to have to figure out. I was given the opportunity to embark on a new experience and that stirred up some feelings that I wasn't expecting. And my scrutiny and interrogation of those feelings led me again to a place that I wasn't expecting, a place where I had to critically examine my opinions and concerns about the different frameworks and contexts in which people can interpret psychedelics. And this skepticism, while it can be useful to a point, it can also backfire and lead me to the exact thing that I was afraid of, the false guarantee that there is a right way or a wrong way for our society to correctly interpret and use these experiences. And I now see that way of thinking as being one of two potential extremes that demand the same thing that you don't question anymore that this is the way to do it and there is no other answer. On the one hand, you have the promise of quantifiable fact and the ascertainment of true versus false insight. And on the other hand, you have the abdication of responsibility to even ask and just the complete blind acceptance of the experience or the mystical when in fact, in between these two, there exists a sort of beautiful chaos of potential insights, interpretations, meanings, inspirations that we can draw from. And that's a very powerful place to be. Having the ability to personally scrutinize your experience and the meanings that you're drawing from it and having a community of people to help you in that process allows us to choose the meanings that we want to make, choose the interpretations that will best suit our values, our families, our communities, and allow us to build the frameworks and the context that we want to see and that best suit us and the people around us. And so while this experience has been incredibly optimistic, and I feel a renewed sort of hope that society can maybe shake free of some of the old ideas we have regarding these states of mind and their potential uses and misuses, there is still many questions that are going to need to be answered. Questions about equitable access to these experiences, questions about the regulatory frameworks and the medicinal uses, questions about Yes, the validity of some of the positive outcomes that we are seeing reported. All of this is still an ongoing process and part of that beautiful chaos, but I'm inspired by the fact that there was a group of people that I got to meet that were interested in the same questions and that unbeknownst to me at the time, 
I was learning from them and maybe they were learning from me and maybe someone will learn from this podcast. That's a really fascinating thing and that's a really hopeful thing. And so I just want to thank the people that were in that workshop experience with me, the facilitators of that workshop, and also the Mind Foundation for allowing me to be part of it and for being open to and supporting the work that I do. And there you have it. I leave this episode and I leave this workshop with more questions than answers. But like I said in the intro, I think there's a clearer path of what the goal is. A community, open discussion, critical thought, all of these things are not an endpoint, but a goal, a, a practice, if you will. And I think that that's a very interesting way to look at these things and not have these super defined claims. You will get this. This will help you with this. Because I don't think that's an appropriate way to look at anything uh, involved with personal growth or therapy. And I'm still fascinated by how I grapple with these topics and how I'm drawn to these topics, despite the fact that I am consistently confronted with and still somewhat bothered by the fact that we cannot get these sort of empirical answers. Therapy and psychedelic states, these kind of things, they don't fit into that neat little box of randomized controlled trials, etc, etc. And that really, really interests me. So I'm going to continue to ask questions, to dig into these topics, to see the different ways in which people are going to sort of handle this. And I want to thank again the Mind Foundation for allowing me access to come in and, and experience this and for being open, like I said, to the work that I do. And let me just mention again, check the links in the, in the show notes for the upcoming dates of the Beyond Experience workshops. Get in touch with the Mind Foundation. They do have a lot of online programs and they're just an interesting group. And, you know, I, did, I don't get paid or anything to say this, but I just, I really think it's fascinating. The questions that they're doing, the approach that they're taking, I really, it resonates with me in a way that they are very critical and um, trying to blend this, you know, scientific with this more artistic, uh, spiritual, personal growth kind of mindset that you know, maybe doesn't, like I said, fit into those scientific boxes. So there's a link to their website. There's a link to these workshops in the show notes. Reach out, Instagram, Twitter, at 2Brad4U, 2Brad4U at gmail.com. The website again is 2Brad4U.wordpress.com. Rate, subscribe, review, wherever you get your podcasts. That really, really helps us out. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.